Welcome back to Tequila She Wrote, a podcast about cocktails and true crime. I'm Trish, your bartender. And I'm Sloan, your crime tender. And today we're going to be doing the case of the Zoo Man, who is also known as Thomas Husky. Mm-hmm. It's not a case that I feel like I'm familiar with. You're probably not. I originally found this case and I was like, ooh, this is going to be like the Lion King meets true crime. Oh, gosh. <laughs> but no, it's Don't not. Don't ruin a... my childhood. It's not that. Uh, <laughs> I meant like uh, Joe. Ew. What was the Joe or um, from Quarantine Times? The oh, Lion... Joe Exotic? Yes. I thought it was going to be like one of those like cases meets true crime. Not exactly, kind of. <laughs> not exactly. Not really. Zoo Man is really a misleading title in this case. But, however, I finished doing all of my main research for this case, and then the very last article that I came across at the very end, it was like, oh, you might know this case from the body farms. And I'm like, ding, 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 I know the body farms. That is Death's Acre, which is the book that I read in high school, and I've talked about it on this podcast before. And it's one of the things that got me, like, really interested in this genre, if you will. Um, But Death's Acre is a Tennessee professor, and he made a lot of headway in forensic sciences for us. And I'm going to read a little excerpt from his book. And anyways... I found this case on my own, and then it ended up coming full circle for me to, like, my high school self turning into this freak that I am today. (laughs) But, yeah. I'm interested to know what this case is about. Like, we have our little spreadsheet that we update things on, and, like, both of us were terrible about updating this week, but... When I finally saw her thing, it just literally is, it says, like, serial rapist and murderer. I was like, okay. <laughs> Zoo man and rapist. Like, not what I would have pictured, I guess. But we shall see. And with that being said, we'll kick you off to our drink, then our episode. <laughs> Welcome back to another round of bartending with your bartender, Trish. And for today's drink, doesn't really require much bartending, but it's a drink that I got introduced to at my job, (laughs) and I love it. It's very easy, simple, like, little thing, and... I like the fact that it's not overly sweet, but it's also like a lighter drink too. And it is the Blood Orange Zombie Killer from Bee Nectar Meadery. It's a cider, so it's not mead, it's a cider. 
and it's only 5.5% ABV, so it's like not very high in alcohol content at all. But like I said, what I love about it is that it's got a good flavor and it's it's just it's very light. It's a cider. I grew up like not being like the one that really liked beers. I grew up with like mom making me like very weak cocktails. <laughs> so then when I started trying stuff outside of like mixed drinks, ciders are what I really loved. Like I was big into like the woodchucks and stuff like that. And so like when I find a cider that's like really good and doesn't taste overly like I guess apple to me, I get really excited about it. <laughs> so like this one, what I love about it, like it says, it's a very easy drink. I will say bee nectar can get a little expensive, but it's well worth it. Give it a shot if you do come across it. The original flavor of like this one is just zombie killer, and that one's good as well. But I like the blood orange a little better. But I do know it's one that is a little harder to find. So if you do find just the regular zombie killer, it's also a very good one. I feel like Bee Nectar doesn't really miss with their ciders. And their meads are pretty good too. We recently had a mead fest at work, so I got to try a few of those. So I am looking to possibly invest in a mead or two to like bring that variety into the podcast. I feel like that we've done beers and like wine and that. So why not throw meat in? But we'll get there eventually. I just got to find the right one. But for now, if you come across Blood Orange Zombie Killer and it's not too, too expensive for you, pick it up. Let us know what you think. And with that being said, we'll kick you off to the episode. Every October, the East Tennessee Hills get all gussied up for six dazzling weeks. The dogwoods turn crimson, the maples a brilliant red-orange, the tulip poplars bright yellow, the oaks variations in red and brown. Nine miles east of downtown Knoxville, not far beyond a bridge where Interstate 40 crosses the green waters of the Holston River, the fall colors put on a show in a thick stand of hardwoods paralleling the highway. The woods lie at the end of a short end road, Cahaba Lane, which runs for a half mile beside the eastbound lanes of the freeway. Facing the traffic are a handful of houses and trailers and a church perched high on a grassy slope, East Sunnyview Baptist Church. To the south, away from the interstate, a small wet weather creek winds through the trees. Cahaba Lane deadens at the foot of a tower- towering billboard. Comfort Inn, free breakfast, guest laundry, supported by five rusting I-beams. Between two of the supports, a path leads up a gently sloping ridge that is dotted with empty beer cans, snack wrappers, egg cartons, shoes, and other household and automotive debris. The forest floor is also littered with acorns, which support a large population of squirrels. On October 20th, 1992, A hunter aiming to do a little squirrel population control wandered up the paths into the woods. 
Away up the trail, he noticed a battered mattress and a rotting doghouse. Stuffed into the doghouse was a department store mannequin. It's never a mannequin. Kicking aside some of the debris, he saw the mannequin was actually a young woman. A chemically blonde, partially nude, and very dead young woman. Her hands bound with orange baling twine. The hunter raced to a phone and called the police. Within minutes, the dead end began filling with vehicles from the Knox County Sheriff's Department and the Knoxville Police Department. One of the KPD officers who converged on Cahaba Lane recognized the victim as Patricia Anderson. Oh, uh, not Patricia. Oh, Patricia. <laughs> a 32-year-old white female he'd been trying to find since she disappeared nearly a week before. Patty Anderson was no stranger to the police. A prostitute with a cocaine habit and a police record, she was good-looking and a flashy dresser. She was also in the early stages of pregnancy, a fact that few of her co-workers or clients knew. She had told a bail bondsman that she was trying to scrape together enough money for an abortion, and her quest for cash was probably what had brought her to this unlucky dead end. Ugh. Patricia. Oh, Patricia. It always has to be a Patricia, huh? I do tend to like to cover Patricia's. (laughs) It just ends up this way. I didn't mean for this. I swear this time. So this case for us actually begins in February of 1992, months before a single sex worker died. When a woman came to Knoxville Police Department with a lie that led them to a rapist in the act. Tom Presley, a retired Knoxville Police Department investigator, remembered. She told me she'd been abducted inside the city, taken to a spot in the county and raped, then tied up and robbed. Turns out it was all a lie and she didn't want to admit it because she was a prostitute. So then she ended up taking him to a spot and, uh... As luck would have it, guess who was there? Thomas Husky. No. Yes. So this woman led investigator Presley to a secluded patch of woods off Cahaba Lane in East Knox County. A spot, like I said earlier, a spot that is littered with used condoms, (laughs) mattresses, other debris. Just a lovely little spot. It's definitely somewhere that is favored by um, sex workers and their johns because it's easy accessible, like easy access from the highway, from the interstate, and it's also hidden. So because they're so close to the interstate, like any noise that's made is covered up by passing cars. Yeah. This is a very popular tourist destination, whether you're going to Knoxville or Nashville or Gatlinburg or Pigeon Forge or, you know, like Knoxville is a main intersection Yeah, for interstates. So like it makes sense that this is a very noisy area, even whenever it's not high tourist season. So, Tom Presley said, we got to the dead end, and the woman said, there's his car. And as I went up there, she saw his stuff. She saw her stuff. We went into the woods, and she said, there he is now. And he had this other little girl naked and on her knees. 
Investigator Presley stopped Husky at gunpoint and arrested him on the spot. And, like, to me, I'm like, was this woman lying? Because she led you straight to the spot. Right. What proof do we have that she was actually lying? I think that the proof that they have that she was lying is that she didn't want to, um, what's, she didn't want to corroborate her story later on. And that's really the only proof that they had that she was lying. But anyways, another investigator picked up the case after the woman admitted being prostitute, being a sex worker, a prostitute, who went to Cohaba Lane willingly. And yes... As sex workers, I'm sure they all went willingly, but that doesn't mean that what happened to them is what they wanted to happen to them. So, once again, was the first woman lying or not? The woman refused to testify, so Thomas went free. Once again, that was the word I was trying to come up with, testify. But... I think he did what a lot of criminals do. He learned from his mistakes, and he decided the next time he was not going to leave any witnesses behind after this woman. Yeah. Experts say that's a common step in the evolution of a serial killer. Most such killers begin with lesser offenses, such as rapes or indecent exposure, and work their way up to the next thrill. So, eight months later, we come back to October 20th, 1992, when the squirrel hunter walked up on the body of Patricia Rose Anderson, 32, in the same woods off of Cahaba Lane. After Patricia was found, police began searching the area, leading them to find two more bodies. One was fresh, but one had decomposed leading investigators to believe that they had stumbled upon a serial killer's dumping ground. In total, the investigators found four bodies, including Patricia. Tom Presley, the KPD investigator, heard the news, recognized the spot, picked up the phone immediately, called the county sheriff, and said, I think I know who your killer is. Okay. So... Getting into the investigation, the sex workers called Thomas the zoo man for his habit of taking them behind the zoo where he claimed that he once had worked. Then Thomas would tie them up, beat them, and most sex workers in the areas just learned to like stay away from Thomas altogether. And so I'm not very familiar with this area, but from what I can gather, the wooded spot where they were finding these bodies was kind of in between the interstate and like the back of the zoo. Yeah. So that's how this all ties in together. Like the zoo was close to the interstate. So after they found Patricia's body, the cops went on to look for Thomas who lived with his parents in Pigeon Forge Upon searching Thomas's parents' home, they found the rope that matched the rope that they had found on the other bodies, porn, as well as jewelry that detectives believed had been taken from the dead women. But investigators relied on a search warrant that was issued by a city judicial commissioner, who it turns out did not have authority to issue a warrant. <laughs> so everything that they found in this search was not usable in court. Of course. Mm-hmm. 
During one interrogation, Thomas's voice all of a sudden changed, as well as his demeanor, to one that was very angry and aggressive. And then he indicated to the investigators that Thomas was no longer in the room. It was now Kyle. One of his other personalities that had committed the murders in an effort to hurt Tom. Okay. Mm -hmm. Soon after came another voice. This one was like a very cultured British accent voice with an unusual vocabulary. And this personality called himself Philip Dax. And he said that he was there to protect Tom from Kyle. So we all kind of know where this is going, right? Thomas claims to suffer from multiple personality disorder and blamed the killings on Kyle, his alter ego who claimed to hate Thomas and wanted to ruin his life. Prosecutors claimed that Thomas faked the mental illness and pulled the name from East Knoxville's Kyle Avenue, where the Husky family once lived. Defense psychologist Diana McCoy testified that Thomas Husky did have the condition due to childhood trauma and molestation. Thomas's wife affirmed that she noticed these altered personalities, but Dr. Robert Sidoff, a forensic psychiatrist, said he'd been in Thomas's presence when one of the personalities emerged via altered facial expressions and mannerisms, including shifting hands from right to left when he wrote. So, a lot of people believed him. A lot of the quote-unquote science was backing him up at this point. But the only person in his life that could confirm this was his wife and like of course she doesn't want her husband to go to jail yeah unfortunately slash fortunately all of these statements hit the trash after judges ruled the confession had been coerced the prosecution team led by randy nichols also hired experts including dr herbert spiegel an expert on hypnosis and famous for treating shirley manson mason Sybil, whom he believed did not display genuine MPD, multiple personality disorder. Spiegel stated that dissociative identity disorder is rare and suggested that Thomas was highly imaginative and had created Kyle to manipulate the court. The prosecutor proposed that Thomas had based Dax, the British personality, on a daytime soap opera, Days of Our Lives, and had gotten Kyle from the name of a road in his childhood neighborhood. In addition, no one had corroborated Thomas's alleged child abuse. An inmate revealed that Thomas had read Sybil and said he was going to pretend to be crazy to avoid a death sentence. Thomas's mother said she'd seen no evidence of any of the alleged alter personalities until all of this had happened. Oh, right. David Davenport, a retired Tennessee Bureau of Investigation agent, said, I was there. I disagree. I personally feel he conned the whole system. He certainly gave that statement knowing what rights he had. Most of his story he gleaned from television. When he became Kyle, he showed no remorse. He knew he was caught. 
This case dragged on for years. I'm talking like 13 fucking years. Two different juries found Thomas guilty in the rapes committed before the killings, but neither one of the juries could commit to convicting him of the murder charges. They always deadlocked. The first jury resulted in five jurors believing Thomas was guilty and sane, while four believed he was not guilty by reason of insanity, buying the multiple personality disorder theory, and the last three just could not re reach a decision. One of the three undecided jurors later admitted that if she had knowledge of his prior convictions for rape and attempted murder, she would have voted differently. And I did, I glossed straight over that. But whenever he, the first woman that was like lying or whatever, when mm -hmm. that had happened, they did take him in at that point on rape charges of the other woman. And because nobody wanted to testify, he was let out. And that happened a few times before Patricia's body was actually found. So, like, serial rapist, serial murderer. Yeah. The state Supreme Court let stand a June lower court decision that guts the case against Knox County's first and only accused serial killer. A strict reading of the judgment filed by the State Court of Criminal Appeals in June would seem to back up the two attorneys' contention that the 13-year-old legal battle is finished. It is therefore ordered and adjudged that the judgment of the trial court is affirmed and the court is remanded to the criminal court of Knox County for the dismissal of the case. So basically, they were like, hey, you're right. We can't prove that he murdered them, but we can prove that he raped them. Yes. Yeah. Uh, District Attorney General Randall Nickies is not Nichols. Sorry. Yeah, let me start over. Knox County District Attorney General Randy Nichols is not ready to throw in the towel just yet at this point. He says he killed more people than anybody in the history of this county. I'm going to do my best to try to put a case together. Even if criminal court judge Richard Bumgartner, I wish I made that name up, but I did not, Bumgartner, does not treat the appellate's court judgment as a direct order. D.A. Nichols faced a daunting task. Bumgartner's ruling, which was affirmed by the appellate court and left unchallenged by the state's high court, tosses out everything that directly ties Thomas to the 1992 slayings of the four women. Gone is Thomas's confession. Barred from use at trial is the souvenir jewelry authorities say he took from some of his victims and the rope that he said to use to bind them. Because remember, the doofus that signed the search warrant did not have the authority to sign the search warrant. D.A. Nichols' only hope at this point would be a largely circumstantial case buried somewhere in the boxes and boxes of files the case had generated. Can I weave a circumstantial evidence, Nichols wondered aloud Monday? I'm going to make every effort. That was literally his only chance. Thomas Husky's case is the most protracted in Knox County history and the most expensive in ten Tennessee history ever. It's been funded on the taxpayer dime. Whether the state Supreme Court's refusal to hear the prosecution's appeal of the June decision that sounded the death knell 
is just as dependent on who is asked. D.A. Nichols is convinced that Thomas Husky beat and strangled the four women, all thought to be prostitutes, and hid their bodies in the wooded area of Cahaba Lane in East Knox County. He is certain that Thomas turned from a rapist who stalked prostitutes and sexually battered them at a barn in the Knoxville Zoo, where his father worked as an elephant trainer, to a killer. He points to the words from Thomas's own mouth to Knox County Sheriff's Office detectives and a Tennessee Bureau of Investigation agent soon after the bodies were discovered. But the core issue has always been whether these words mark the confession of a stone-cold killer or the ranting of an insane man. Thomas made his alleged confession via use of an alter ego, Kyle, and his attorneys have long claimed he suffered multiple personalities. His defense attorneys insisted that Kyle's confession to murder was a made-up tale designed by an alter ego to kill his host and personality, Thomas. He says the detail of Kyle's confession don't match up to the crime scene evidence, and therefore it does not matter. And D.A. Nichols said that the jewelry belonging to some of the victims and ropes similar to those used to bind the women was found in the bedroom of Husky's parents' Pigeon Forge home where Thomas was living. Circumstantial evidence that Thomas was guilty. He cannot use that evidence at trial because deputies arrived there via the flawed court search warrant. Nichols had hoped that the state Supreme Court would at least review his contention that Tennessee, like the federal government and many other states, should honor what's known as a good faith exception. I feel like that would definitely be a good faith exception. Um, In some of the jewelry that was found, there was a hair that actually matched Patricia's hair. And still, they would not allow this shit to be used in court because of the flawed search warrant. And I get it. The search that I get it. The search warrant was not legal, and our like justice system is to make everything as equal as possible. But whenever you have evidence that proves and could later be tested for like DNA evidence showing that the jewelry in his house had hair that matched one of the victims, and you still cannot use that evidence. That's frustrating as fuck. Anyways, the confession was tossed out because the appellate court ruled it was not voluntary, uh, uh, saying that detectives wore down Thomas over several days after he invoked his right to attorney. And, yeah, so that is my story on the Zoo Man murders. He got away with the murders but he was definitely convicted and died in jail for the rapes at least i guess silver lining somehow you look at it somehow yes yes but that is the case of thomas husky and it is the first case for me to present from death's acre (laughs) I will say, like, the Death's Acre perspective is a lot different. Um, If you don't know about this book, it is about the body farm at Tennessee University, University of Tennessee, whatever it is. And so the chapter on this case is specifically about, like, how they got called out to the scene. They had to collect the body. They walked past the first body and they were like, yeah, we need you to come pick up two of them. 
he walks past the first body and he's like, that's too fresh for me to take. Like, you need to call the medical examiner to come get that one and check that one out. Then he goes up to the next one and it's obvious to him that some animal or somebody has dragged the body uphill because if you look downhill, you can see part of her hair. You can see part of part of her decomposition. But, like, none of the cops caught that. Just the specialist caught that. And so they pick up the rest of the body. They put it into a body bag. Then they go down. They get some of the material from where she was originally, found, originally at. And then, like... I think one of the coolest parts to me about this, and I am somebody that is very sickened by bugs, so it's not that this is cool, (laughs) but it's something that was very helpful for forensic sciences. But whenever he came across the bodies, it was October, Tennessee, Knoxville, so it's cold air. We're cold here in southern Alabama for the first time in a long time, all right? But... This is October 20th, Knoxville, Tennessee. The cold snaps down a lot. And so that affects how the bodies decompose and how the bugs react and all this and all that. So they put the body into the bag. And then 45 minutes later, they're back at the school. They open up the bag. And then all of a sudden, all of these maggots are coming out of the bag. And the students are like, but what? There were none here. Whenever we put the the body in the bag, what's going on? And the professor was like, one, you need to recognize that they react to lack of light. So because we put the body in the bag during daylight, they were probably hiding in the nose and the mouth and the ears and the the body parts. And so they were hiding. Once they were in the dark, they all started coming out. And second you have to take into consideration that it was in a bag that once we closed it, the heat kind of rose a little bit and you put it into the vehicle to get it back to the school. So like between the light and the slight change in temperature, it dramatically affected the bug growth versus if they would have been at the site with all of his students studying it there. Yeah. And so There was a lot in this book on how they were able to help them crack the case open. Another part is that they believed that all of the women were being strangled to death. And they almost like counter argued that. And then um, Professor Bill Bass sent his students back to the site and made them search in the cold for the hyoid bone. And they found it like three or four hours in. So that was whenever they were able to confirm that all of the women had been strangled to death. But like, I don't know. I'm not really a sciencey person, but the way that this book is written makes it easy to understand, interesting to read. Yeah. And I love it. <laughs> but that is my case today. My Zoo Man murders. Hope you enjoyed it. And we'll kiss you. We'll kiss you. We'll kick you off to the last call. <laughs> All right. And welcome to another last call. And for today's case, we've done some fun facts about like Alabama and like places like that. We have not done, at least that I remember, any about Tennessee. And considering like, this is kind of where it takes place. I figured, why not? I love Tennessee. 
if I could move to Nashville, I would, but then I'd be like everybody else in this fucking country right now that wants to live there. Nashville has grown in size so much in the past, just like five years, I feel like. Like, it's overpopulated. Trying to find a house in Nashville, like, if you have a small budget, it's it's not possible. It doesn't matter if you're living in East Nashville, North Nashville, like, what? You're not living in Nashville. You're living in, like, Goodlitzville or somewhere else like that. But... Like I said, these are some fun facts about Tennessee in general. And the first one is, we might have covered this before, but Tennessee is the birthplace for Mountain Dew. Um, The original formula was made in, like, Appalachian in the 1940s. And so I guess, like, it was basically around Knoxville and Johnson City. So that's technically that. That is Tennessee. So it's a small part of Appalachia. (laughs) Uh, The second fun fact is it's tied with the title as the most bordered state. There are are a total of eight states that surround Tennessee, and those are Kentucky, Virginia, um, North Carolina, and East Carolina, Arkansas, Missouri, and um, Georgia. A very small part of Mississippi does touch um, Tennessee, and then, of course, Alabama. So... It's quite a lot of states that pretty much can be like, yeah, just drive a little bit and I'm in Tennessee. Where we live, if you want to make it Tennessee, it's like a five-hour drive. So, on a map, it doesn't look that big, but uh, it's quite a drive. All of Mississippi's north borders Tennessee. I don't know why, like, maybe it's just my brain like does not always think like mississippi like hitting because a mississippi girl don't change her ways (laughs) just because everybody knows her name i know because memphis is like right on arkansas like because that's why there's a part of arkansas that's called memphis arkansas but anyways i had family in memphis growing up and we would always go up I-55, go right to Memphis. <laughs> so I know. <laughs> I know. I even looked it up on a map to make sure I didn't sound super dumb. Nice. But says the other state that touches, like, a lot of other, like, neighboring states is Missouri. Which I was like, all right. Okay. Um, the next little fun fact. True Tennessee whiskey can't be made anywhere else in the world. Tennessee whiskey is more than just a label. It's a very distinct whiskey style made with the iconic Lincoln County process that uses a charcoal filter 
and distinct instructions regarding details like aging and timing. The famed Jack Daniels is responsible for most of the state's whiskey exports, which I grew up <laughs> like always drinking Jack. And now a days, like when I, <laughs> when I even try it, I'm like, oh God, <laughs> like I'll still drink some Jack every so often, but like, it's usually one and then I'm like, all right, moving on. But I did know that, you know, Tennessee whiskey is definitely different from others. Tennessee is also the home of the world's oldest radio station, and that is the Grand Old Opry, if you don't know that. If you ever get a chance to go to Nashville, definitely make it, you know, a little touristy stop for you to, like, stop at the Grand Old Opry and do the tour. It's It was so cool. I loved it. They talk about when they just did radio and that, and then, like, they also take you through the backstage process and everything. You get to go on stage as long as, like, it's not a show day when they're trying to do rehearsals and stuff like that, but you get to go on the stage. I got to stand in the famous circle. My, my country girl heart was, was happy. The next little fun fact, Cotton Candy was born here. Um, says an unlikely pair invented the sweet treat in Nashville, a dentist and a candy maker. I feel like the dentist part was a way for them securing their job. <laughs> says the original makers were Dr. William Morrison and John Wharton, who created a machine that melted down sugar crystals and blew it through a screen creating delicate threads. It was first introduced at the 1904 St. Louis Fair and sold by the thousands. So, again, I feel like this was a dentist saying, hey, you want to make something that's going to rot people's teeth so I can, like, basically have job security? <laughs> but I do love me some cotton candy. It still amazes me that, like, a little bit of water basically add just, like, disintegrates the whole thing. So, along with cotton candy being invented in Tennessee, so was the moon pie. And if you are from the South, especially, like, here in Mobile and that, you know, the moon pie is just... A symbol of Mardi Gras. But. We do a moon pie drop here. Yeah. For New Year's. <laughs> I've never gone down and actually watched the moon pie. But I do know it's a moon pie that hangs off the side of the building and it drops down. But it says, over in Chattanooga at a local bakery in 1917, the chocolate-covered snack quick, um, the, this chocolate-covered snack cake quickly became a staple. It was a favorite item of regular customers, and by the late 1920s, hundreds were being produced in-house. In World War II, the pie was even utilized as 
an ideal ration item for servicemen and women overseas. So that's a little cool. I didn't know. I've never really looked into like the like backstory of moon pies, but that's it's kind of cool. Tennessee is also approximately the home of 10,000 caves and caverns. Tennessee, I feel like like to drive from basically Alabama straight through to like Kentucky, it's really not like a long state that way, but like it is like if you I guess if you're going probably from like east to west. Yeah. But it is a very like hilly <laughs> like this it's part of the Appalachian so like you know there's mountains and everything so it, I mean I guess it shouldn't surprise me that there's so many like caves in that but it'd be I think that'd be a cool thing to do and go look at some of the caves we can add it to our Arkansas uh crystal uh <laughs> drive <-do> list. yeah <laughs> Just hop on up to Nashville and that. Uh, the birthplace of country music is actually in Bristol and not in Nashville. So Nashville, you've been lying. You've been lying for years. Or blues music? Of country music. Oh, okay. I don't know where I heard, heard blues. And I don't know. But along the Tennessee-Virginia border... Bristol is nestled in the heart of Appalachia and filled with folk music and blues. In the infancy of the recording industry, Ralph Peer with Victor Rector Records, ugh, if I can speak, decided to record local musicians in Bristol. But I just... Congress passed a resolution in 1998 officially recognizing Bristol as the birthplace of country music. And I'm sure Nashville probably threw a fit. Because Nashville has always been the home of country music for as long as I can remember. But whatever. <laughs> we did cover this in the... Um, it was Melissa Witt. I was like, what case did I just like go through and edit but it's the one that takes place in arkansas but the tennessee is the birthplace for america's first female senator who is hattie caraway who was born in bakersville in 1878 and then she was the first elected u.s senator who represented arkansas so, that's kind of cool. Um, Prohibition put a big dent in the state's distillery industry. You gotta think. When you think Tennessee and that, you think, like, the Whiskey Trail and, st and like, Moonshine and stuff like that. So, yeah. During the Prohibition time, I'm sure, <laughs> like, you gotta figure Tennessee's, like, state revenue, whether... You want to admit it was from booze or not. That definitely had to have gone way down. The next little fun fact is Elvis Presley's old home is the second most visited house museum. Graceland, 
Presley's yeah. <clears throat> world-renowned home is a Memphis staple. A staple. Ooh, I can't speak today. <laughs> Join the club. But um, what you may not know is that is the second most visited house museum in the country. It's second only to the White House, which, attra- which attracts over 60, not 60, 600,000 visitors annually. Send me to Graceland any day. <laughs> I've seen the White House, like, in person. I've never done a tour of it. I mean, other than the fact I don't that give I'm a like... fuck about the White House. Take me to Graceland. I'll pay that price every day. <laughs> I've never been to Graceland, actually, so. Next summer. <laughs> um, Tin Pan South is the largest songwriters festival in the world. Tin Pan South is an event dedicated to songs and songwriters alike. And it takes place each year in Music City itself, Nashville. I feel like I've never heard, like, any of my family that lives there talk about it. They're not music writers. But I'm just, like, you would think if it's, like, a big, like, festival and that it would shut down some stuff. So, I wonder if it only kind of really affects, like, Broadway. Not Broadway, but, um, Music Row and that. Who knows? I'll have to look up and see where... Where it kind of sits. But, I mean, if it shuts down downtown, I mean, it's just another thing that shuts down downtown at this point. Um, Tennessee boasts having the most visited national park in the U.S. And that's the Great Smoky Mountains National Park. Which, I mean, you gotta think, how many, how many, like, thousands millions of people visit Gatlinburg and that's Tennessee so I mean my friend was asking me the other day because they were like you know we were thinking about doing Gatlinburg but like we're trying to decide if it was worth it and I was like well you two aren't really drinkers so like that's half the pull of Gatlinburg is you get to go try like a bunch of wines and moonshines and stuff like that and then you have, like, your really touristy things. But then, like, besides that, it's, like, nature trails and stuff like that. I was about to say, there's still a ton of, like, nature trails and shopping. And... But they're also not, like, big nature people. Yeah. So I was like, I feel like Gatlinburg, besides, like, the beauty in that, <coughs> would just be wasted on them. Yeah. I agree. I think, I mean, like, if you're somebody that... If you're vacation, you just want to go and sit in some place and be locked away and look at a beautiful place, then yeah, that could be cool too. But I like to go out and do things. Yeah. Nate sent me a TikTok the other day that was like, husbands, and your wife is like, come on, we're going to go out. And the husband's like, I just want to sit here and do nothing. And I'm like, yeah, but Nate, with me, you get out and you see the world. And if I was not with you, you would see the world through your computer with video games. like. I'm getting you out and doing things. Yeah, like, Gatlinburg, we love, one, because we get to try all of our moonshines and our different wines and stuff, and it's a good, like, drinking holiday (laughs) for us, but also, 
we enjoy like going on like the little nature hikes and that. And when we went like last time with like our friend Crystal, we didn't get to do too much of the nature hikes and that just because we did go at like a very busy time. It was like right as like it was like the changing of the leaves, which is when a lot of people go. Well, we went for like my wedding anniversary. Yeah. So my husband went too. But also like we got a pretty nice Airbnb. It was a house that was on a creek and it had like a hammock in the background. And so like I feel like we got a lot of our nature stuff just being at the house. Yeah. But it was also a stressful time because yeah. we had her dogs and then we had our friend Crystal's dog. And, like, they got along fine, but then... My dog's a horn dog. Yeah, Fitz was trying to get to know Leo a little too intimately. And Leo, being the dog that doesn't even bark, eventually was just, like, over it. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> but, yeah. Anyways. We, we want to go back and... Sans dogs, I think. <laughs> yes. For sure. My dogs are not going back. <laughs> but definitely, if you, you know, like nature and that, definitely going to like the Smoky Mountains, highly recommend. There's a lot of beautiful places throughout. I know when I went with my family, we went on a lot of nature hikes and that's a lot of waterfalls and stuff like that. It was great. Those are our fun facts. Hope you enjoyed them. If you are liking what you're hearing and you want a little bit more, feel free to check us out on our Patreon, which is set up for as little as $2 a month, you get ad-free episodes and you get a little more bonus content. We do have a like bonus episode we put out. We also have like little, like in our other tiers, you get like a haunted and like a ruining paradise, all that. Check it out. Let us know what you think. Let us know if you think we're missing something. Easiest way to find us there is at patreon.com backslash tequila she wrote. Or you can go to our socials and find our link tree. And there's a big link on there for Patreon. It should send you directly to our page. We also have our social medias. Uh, we have Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, Instagram. They are all tequila she wrote across the board. You can find our cocktail recipes there. Any photos relating to the case. You can also find us or email us with any cocktail recipes case such case suggestions or anything like that at tequila she wrote at gmail.com and we hope you enjoyed hanging out with us today if you do please remember to rate us subscribe share us with a friend and we will see you next time bye-bye bye, -bye. bye.